Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, somewhere in your nation's capital. Exactly. Not too far from here is uh, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council, who says she's surrounded by boxes. We don't know why, but... I am, because I'm moving from my home. Oh, my goodness. So it will no longer be Cleveland Park. Are you joining the caravan? No. No, okay. Um, but we can discuss that later. Yeah. But it is going to be a caravan when I move. No, yeah, no, I, I, I feel you. I feel your pain. And you know what? I'm not going to say where I'm moving because I'm a little nervous these days, which is a half a joke. Yeah, no, it. I totally get it. Um, I, I, and and in far off London, England, back freshly from the Middle East, is Corey Shockey of Double I Double S. Corey, you were just in Bahrain. What were you doing in Bahrain? That's right. So one of the really wonderful things the International Institute for Strategic Studies does is convene defense and foreign ministers. Uh, My boss realized about 15 years ago that, that Europe and the U.S. were increasingly drawn into security issues in the Middle East and Asia. And there was nothing like that kind of thick webbing of institutional engagement there. So we ran a big defense ministers meeting in the autumn in Bahrain, and we had 20 ministers or so there uh, these last couple of days. Three interesting things happened. First, well, um, the American Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, gave a terrific speech, actually, emphasizing America's enduring interests in the region, but also doing a better job than any other person in the Trump administration, by far, of of condemning the Khashoggi murder and emphasizing that the lack of respect for the rule of law by the Saudis in having done this is detrimental to them and detrimental to the region. Incidentally, the the, um, Saudi foreign minister uh, pointedly was not there for that condemnation and ostentatiously walked in right afterwards. And uh, then, and then, if I if I read the news correctly, said something to the effect that the responses to the Khashoggi event were hysterical. Yes, exactly right. He uh, said that this was all being blown out of proportion and that Saudi Arabia had a vision for the region of light. And Iran, people were losing perspective that Iran uh, had a vision of darkness for the region. And he was widely disbelieved. 
in fact, a lot of the conversation over the course of a few days was the, the near impossibility of Saudi Arabia being able to create those kinds of distinctions anymore, and the much greater difficulty of getting um, any support for the belief that, um, that the Saudis had a better alternative to offer. And the third interesting thing that happened was that foreign minister of Oman talked really quite extraordinarily, not just about the Netanyahu visit, but an Arab state foreign minister speaking in Arabic in the region said, Palestinians have suffered enormously, but Israelis have also suffered enormously. It's time for us to move beyond this and to solve the problems of the future. It was, uh, I think it has the potential to be really important. Well, needless to say, two of the things that Corey just talked about there were the, the kind of statements that we embrace because they are extraordinary. In the case of Secretary Mattis, he he made a presidential statement when we had not had a presidential statement uh, from a senior U.S. official on the uh, Khashoggi in- incident, uh, and 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 clearly from the Omanis we we saw something a little bit, um, uh, you know, uh, more balanced in its approach to the the Israel and and Palestine issue. Uh, so I'm going to set those aside because those are positive. When you talk about how the Saudis have handled this, and frankly, the Saudis and all of their allies have handled it. Uh, Avalon, let me turn to you. Could they have done it any worse? And is there any sign that they're understanding how badly they're handling this? Right. I don't think they could have done it any worse. I mean, nobody believes their, you know, the various iterations of their cover story. The, although I suppose you know there were some investors who went to the conference last week, um, which was disappointing, and we even had, of course, our Treasury Secretary show up in Riyadh, um, and MBS, the Crown Prince, came out and um, was applauded, and so I suppose it could have been slightly worse, but I, I, I still think that you know most people, even the people who were there at the at the uh, Financial Investment Initiative conference, weren't buying their story. Um, and I don't think it's tenable for the political leadership of America at this point to run back into a full embrace of Saudi Arabia. So in that respect, I, I think they completely botched it. Um, I don't know what will happen next, whether they can correct, because, and I have to confess, I'm not an expert on the Saudi kingdom. So, um, you know, someone else can jump in and, and um, dissuade me or correct me. But I, I do think just knowing what I know about Washington and Congress and the attitude on the Hill, especially in the Senate with regard to Saudi Arabia, it will be really hard, if not impossible, to go back to business as usual so long as the crown prince does not take, does not pay the political price. And what we saw from his father was that this doesn't appear likely, last week at least. So we'll see what happens if there's sustained pressure. Will there be an effort by one or the other you know, um, would-be heir parents to try to assert themselves. Um, I think that's still an open question. But um, it appears that for now, they've the, the, it's in limbo, really, because the next move will be, I think, from the U.S. Congress. 
So, Rosa, one of the things that I read as all of this was unfolding last week, and we had a particularly horrible week here in the United States with the bombings and the shootings in Kentucky and then the shootings in Pittsburgh over the weekend, um, was that the Saudis were kind of cheering this on because they felt it was changing the subject. Evelyn points to the fact that a lot of things are going to come before the Congress over the next months, uh, and that... Uh, views on the Saudis on both sides, the Democrat and the Republican side, have hardened somewhat. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, you you, you have a, a well-developed cynicism about, you know, uh, the, 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 how the American political system processes these things. Are we just going to forget it? Is this going to blow blow, blow past? Because that, that's what the Saudis are counting on. They're counting on us forgetting it. And or, or is there something institutional, as Evelyn suggests, that 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 means they may have it wrong? I, I don't know, but I would say, you know, the usual don't count your congressional hearings before they hatch. Um, I, I think I think things have been changing. Well, two, two points. One, things have been changing so fast in this country that God alone knows what we're going to be thinking about and talking about in two weeks, much less two months. Um, uh, I think that, you know, depending on on how things unfold, you know, for instance, if there's a a big Robert Mueller surprise right after the midterms, for instance, that could knock uh, the Saudis right off everybody's radar screens. Um, um, various types of bad news could knock Saudis off everybody's radar screens. Um, so, so number one, everything is unpredictable. Number two, uh, I do think that in general, I suspect, and I think we talked about this a little bit in our in our podcast last week, that the the strong institutional interests that favor so-called what we'd like to refer to as stability in in, in us Saudi relations, um which is to say that favor uh, uh, continued cooperation on military matters, uh, uh, continued arms sales will prevail over those who are saying, oh no, no, we must do something. we must we must teach them a lesson. Um, so even even aside from the sort of current instability and unpredictability of the U.S. political environment, um, I think that it is overwhelmingly likely that there will be some, uh, you know, general sort of waving of fists in the air and denunciations, but that there's very unlikely to be any real action. Well, that's that's disturbing. But let's 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 keep it sort of going around the recent news of the world. Um, because I think, again, it, it would be easy to get um, wrapped around the axle of of the dysfunction in, in American politics at the moment. And I think we'll we'll talk about that later. But but, you know, two things happened in the past 24 hours uh, outside of the United States and outside of the Middle East that are rather disturbing. And one instance, the uh, right-wing, hard right-wing candidate for president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, won the election. He's a former army captain who celebrates uh, the, 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 the juntas of 50 years ago and felt they were right in, you know, eliminating dissent and has attacked gay people and has been a misogynist and has, has, has really espoused some really horrible views. Um, and has been characterized 
as Brazil's Trump or worse. And and already, hours after his election, Trump called Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro went on television to say how great it was that Trump called him and, and how they're really going to change policy and and so forth. Meanwhile, just as we're considering this trend, you know, and 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 in 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 sort of nationalism and populism around the world, uh, Angela Merkel announced that she was not going to run for re-election, and we are at a moment in German politics where the hard right has actually won a place in uh, all of the the local uh, governments throughout Germany and is poised. Uh, perhaps to succeed Merkel in power, and so this is very ominous on a on a global basis. Uh, typically, when there are swings right or left, there are countervailing forces, and the United States tends to be a stabilizing force with a constant set of principles which we uphold to varying degrees. But at least this is this is the theory. Now we're on the side of the trend towards the hard right, towards populism, towards nationalism, uh, uh, and, and, and frankly, in many respects, against democracy. How do you view these latest developments, uh, Corey? Slightly differently than you do, David. I agree with your description of the new president of Brazil as a very bad piece of work. But I also think you can't understand his election without under without appreciating the con- context in which faith in the political class in Brazil completely collapsed. I mean, 15 years of corruption um, scandals and the whole car wash investigation that made clear that basically everybody in the Brazilian government has been um, corrupt and, and the political system's rotted to its core. So I think it's not all that surprising in that instance that people are willing to take a risk on somebody that they view as willing to fight for their interests at a time where they don't feel the rest of the political class is doing that. I do think it's scary. I do think he will erode the rule of law in very dangerous ways and erode democracy in Brazil. But but I don't think it was people saying, yay, we want a fascist. I think it was a vote of exasperation as much as anything else. And on Germany, I don't think I agree that Germany's turning right. The Hesse election showed uh, the, the mainstream parties losing ground to the Greens more than anything else. And I think Merkel, the end of Merkel's long tenure, she's been chancellor for over 12 years, third longest serving chancellor in Germany's, in modern Germany's history. Um, And uh, I think, I think my sense is that Germans are weary that the mainstream political parties, again, the, Merkel's party, the CDU-CSU, is fracturing under the weight of 12 years in government. The SPD doesn't seem to have any better ideas. And the Green Party's picked up a lot of ground. Other than, here here we go, David, uh, because this catches a theme you very often talk to on this podcast, um, white men are voting for the hard right in Germany. 
<laughs> the theme being white men are idiots and 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 a threat to, <laughs> a theme we have seen in other in other places as well right right a threat to almost every society that has them um but <laughs> oh my God. Uh, no, if only we had a migrant caravan bringing some other non-white men to our country yeah <laughs> would they, they, they should be embraced at the border there would be a party if people were actually paying attention um but uh well first of all let me say this uh Corey's points are well taken and i should point out to those of you who listen to our regular podcast twice a week as we uh, are trying to expand one of the ways we're trying to do this is by adding in these kind of one-on-one conversations throughout the week that stay fresh and cover in a little bit more depth more issues we did one on friday with david sanger that was really good that you should go and listen to we have one posted today uh, with our friend mika oyang about a, a cyber report that her organization has just produced very interesting and we just did one with uh, one of the leading Brazil analysts from J.P. Morgan, Emmy Shio, who talks about Brazil and what happened there uh, and notes that the market went up 10 percent today uh, and notes that, in fact, it was this exhaustion with corruption and the and uh, the Workers Party that actually led to uh, these changes. And we've got more coming. We have a, a, a one coming later this week with Norm Ornstein of the. Uh, Heritage Foundation to talk about the elections and so on. So I would encourage you uh, to go to deepstateradionetwork.com and go and look for these things and become a member and and listen because there's more and more content all the time on the site. Um, but but Evelyn, let me pick up on this. Uh, uh, as uh, let's assume take every point that Corey makes at at, at face value. The departure of Angela Merkel has another consequence which is depriving the Western world of its leader at the moment. I mean, it, it, it used to be the U.S. president was that. It's certainly not the case anymore. Merkel stepped up to some degree. She certainly had seniority. And from time to time, she played a leaderly role uh, that neither Macron nor uh, Theresa May nor uh, Justin Trudeau nor anybody else was able to do. Uh, when Merkel goes... Um, with Trump in place, it it's going to have a negative effect regardless of, of, of who succeeds her, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that's why most people are nervous. Ordinarily, Corey's absolutely right. The world would probably agree with the idea that she should step aside, that 12 years is long enough. Um, and, you know, just as uh, the Russians are maybe tired of Putin, but they can't get rid of him, or not just as the Russians are probably tired of Putin, but they can't get rid of him after 18 years. I think it is. Um, the Germans can get rid of their person who's been on the scene almost as long. And, and so in that respect, it's understandable, but it, it, it does worry the rest of us. Now, interestingly, the greens though, one of their leading politicians is a Yemeni German. So that's kind of an interesting twist. And what I love about the Greens, So this, this heartens me somewhat is that, they, aside from the Yemeni angle, um, the other thing that I love that I've loved for years now is that they were willing to take a clear, hard line on the issue of Russian meddling and Russia's foreign policy all, already in 2014, 15. I mean, early on, they weren't shy. And, um, and I think that, and that was surprising to me, actually, given sort of their 
their history and their, um, yeah, their history. So I, I think having a little change in Germany may not be bad, except for the fact that we would lose, we will lose her leadership. And I don't see any other leader, any obvious leader coming to the fore. Of course, it's hard to predict, you know, will Macron be able to step up? I don't know, because domestically he's, he's not popular and he's got enough on his plate there in France. So, and of course, Theresa May, same story. So it's, Unless something changes, something happens, say, in UK, where they have elections because of Brexit and new leadership comes to the fore, I don't, I, I have a hard time also imagining who's going who's gonna to step up and, you know, fight on the side of the angels internationally. But we need, we need real leaders who are willing to fight for the international order. You know, I was in um, Pennsylvania um, the end of last week, I gave a lecture, something called the Leo Camp Memorial, Memorial Lecture in Reading, Pennsylvania, sponsored by the Jewish Federation there. And my point was that the international system is something that states like the United States, Germany, et cetera, democratic states have used to good effect. But you need strong leaders in the West who know how to use those institutions, who want to use them, who are willing to use them to good effect. And right now, all our leaders want to do, it seems, in the U.S. and elsewhere, is just take apart the international system. And what what replaces it, we know from history, the only alternative is balance of power, you know, dog eat dog, and the end result is war. So I don't have anything encouraging to tell you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think if there is kind of entropy, turning kind of entropy for the day. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm about to say if there has ever been a, a lead in to Rosa, which is kind of like, can you top this? <laughs> I don't know. I've said it all. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, let, let, you know, let's 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 just speculate on this as a second, because the question becomes, who, where is the leadership? You know, look at the major powers. You know, when the Bolsonaro election took place, I wrote a little tweet because that's what people do these days. Um, and it keeps me on an even footing with the president of the United States. And I and and in it I said that, you know, R RIP the BRICS. You know, there was this idea that Jim O'Neill of Goldman Sachs came up with in two thousand and one that the big driving forces of change in the world were gonna be Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And now Brazil has made this hard right turn. Uh, Russia, another journalist today, uh, seems to have committed suicide um, by falling off a balcony. Uh, uh, continuing, I don't mean to make light of it, but the pattern of depredations by Vladimir Putin. Uh, Modi uh, is a nationalist who is fostering some really deep divisions in India and is frightening people who are India experts. Uh, and of course, Xi Jinping has uh, put his foot hard on the brakes of of political reform in China and headed in the other direction. Uh, and you know, this is this is disturbing. And then, of course, you have the developments in the Western world we've just talked about. Can you think of anybody, Rosa, where there's a, a ray of hope? I mean, I'm making a terrible mistake here turning to you for a ray of hope. But well, Justin Trudeau is a nice fellow and a nice looking young man. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Nice, <laughs> nice looking young man. I like the fact that um, the white the White House a week ago said that he was something like an uppity young man, and I thought, you know, he's forty six years old. 
Is he 46, really? Yeah, he's not that well, young. He looks good for his age. Yeah, he's well-preserved. Um, <laughs> no, but David, I mean, I, I I was thinking, actually, as you were speaking, uh, not to be frivolous and, and uh, about Justin Trudeau, but why not be frivolous about Justin Trudeau? Um, but, but when you were saying, you know, who... Who is going to step up and lead? I thought. I thought. Of course. Um, what makes any of us assume that anybody steps up? I mean, there's there. You know, world history does not come with guarantees that you know all bad periods end with good periods, and that the moral arc of the universe arcs towards Steven Pinker. You know, it. On the contrary, um, uh, there's no particular reason to think that. Things won't get a whole lot worse uh, before they get better, if they get better, and that they won't necessarily get better. So I don't see any bright spots. And actually, earlier this morning, I was I was uh, in one of those, you know, uh, off the record, silly sessions with my hypocrisy group, um, being hypocritical. I've mentioned the the World Hypocrisy Tour on our podcast previously, and, and the World Hypocrisy Tour has come to Washington. And I and they've various, come to the they've come to the right <laughs> place. Right. I know, really, though. But but well, not in some ways, no, right? Because one thing you can't say about Donald Trump is that he's a hypocrite. He's a liar. He's a sociopath. Uh, he's a bully. Um, but he's not particularly hypocritical. He he says I'm doing this because it's what I want. I'm doing this because it's good for me. And then he does. I know, Rosa. He says he's uh, not fomenting. Hatred, discord, bigotry, and anti-Semitism. That's lo- That's a lie. That's not hypocrisy. <laughs> okay, uh, I see you lie. the argument. Yeah. Now, now watch, watch <laughs> your step here, Corey, because Rosa is now a certified expert in hypocrisy. I'm a hypocrisy expert. Yeah. Um, but, but in any case, it, my little <laughs> hypocrisy group, um, which is studying hypocrisy and in international relations, has now has now come to Washington. And this morning, we we were having a conversation. Uh, I can't I can't name the person because um, we hypocrites are always off the record. Um, but it, a very, very senior individual um, with a, uh, you know, storied past in multiple U.S. administrations in the foreign policy world. And we were talking about exactly this issue of let's assume that that let's assume the worst. Let's assume that Donald Trump wins in 2020. Let's assume we have six more years um, of uh, self-destructive behavior on the part of the United States. Let's assume that there are no massive shocks on the order of uh, 9-11 in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world. Um, who steps up? Does anybody step up? And his answer as well was, no, nobody steps up. There, there's no reason to think right now that somebody you know, comes riding, I don't know, I guess people ride into the sunset. Do they ride out of the sunset? Uh, wherever they're they right come. into it, but that's when they're leaving. That's when they're leaving, right? Well, when they, where, wherever they come from, <laughs> they, they ride into town on the their horizon. Horse, I don't know. Before yeah. they ride into the sunset, they appear on the horizon. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, no, Rosa. As soon as you're done <laughs> no, with your hypocrisy working group, you can move on to one on cliches. The metaphor working group. <laughs> um, but 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 yeah, I mean that there's there there's there's no reason to. This is not to say that. You know, good thing. Good things could happen, right? I can paint various scenarios in which good things do happen. Um, uh, you know, 
But I think that the scenarios in which nothing much happens or bad thing happen, bad things happen are far more likely than the scenarios in which good things happen. You know, and the, the odds are that nobody steps up and that we, we move into a period that the world has seen many times before uh, in which things are looking pretty, pretty, pretty dark. Well, I, I knew you could get there. They just ride into dark storm clouds. Yeah. So, Evelyn, I want you to do, you know, to enjoy the moment or two you had with that thorny crown of entropy and then send it right back to Rosa. No, we're sharing it. All right. <laughs> um, but I'm going to give you a shot here, um, uh, uh, Tiara of Optimism, uh, to, to, to respond to all of this because. I, you know, I, I could actually take the scenario one step further. It's not that nobody rises up to lead. It's that this trend is actually the trend and the leaders of this trend are actually the leaders of this era. And that Xi Jinping and Vladimir yeah, yeah, Putin, um, you know, end up being the people uh, and perhaps even Donald Trump. I mean, the, the notion that anywhere in the world there are people going, yes, we could do this like Trump. You know, but you think Bolsonaro and Duterte and some others are doing that. They're all sort of headed in the same direction. And we're looking for somebody to lead in another direction. But maybe that's not going to happen. Maybe this is this is the next decade or the next couple of decades. And and we're 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 headed in a completely different direction. What do you think, Corey? I think it is less likely than an alternative outcome where people get exhausted with a melodrama and and friction and nastiness of a Trump administration. And we elect somebody competent and boring, uh, which I believe that will come back into fashion for politicians in the wake of Trump. Because the thing is, right, remember Thatcher's great, great quote about socialism, sooner or later you run out of other people's money? Um, the great thing about democracy is sooner or later, people come to their senses. And it's true they don't always, um, but, but democracies are actually really good at solving problems on a 10-year time frame. And the American democracy is quicker to react than most because our political system's tied so tightly to the electorate with two-year election cycles. Um, so, so I actually think we are likelier than not to see a, a message sent to America's current political leaders by the voters in another 10 days or so that they want something different than what they're seeing. And people are going to keep turning keys in the locks until somebody figures out, hey, here's how I can get voted into office. People are looking for niceness. People are looking for, um, you know, playing by the rules. I I don't think the apocalypse is nigh. I actually think political systems, especially in a time where the liberal order is as pervasive as it is now, and people are as prosperous as they are now, I think they are likelier than not to come to their senses faster than we are giving them credit for. Well, I think that's quite possible. Let me ask a couple of quiz questions here as we get to the close to the end of this. Um, uh, that are relevant to this because it's how long it takes, how quickly they get bored. How long was the Thirty Years' War? 
Go on, anyone. <laughs> Wait, is this like who's buried in Grant's tomb? Or what color is George Washington's white horse? Is this a trick question, David? Julian, Julia Dent is buried in Grant's tomb. It's his wife. Yeah, well, it, it was 30 years, so that is a trick question. How long was the Hundred Years' War? David, I rush in to say that in neither of those wars that you are using as exemplars of people not coming to their senses, <laughs> did you have governments who were held on a leash by their publics? No, but Corey, but- that, that's assuming. I, I, I think your, your point about democracies having greater ability to self-correct is, is correct in itself. But uh, I think our, our democracy itself is so damaged that its self-correction ability uh, is less less clear to me than it would have been, you know, thirty years ago. Uh, well, I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna vote with with Corey because even oh, though I'm like Miss Doom and Groom, and I think there might be a war, um, like a world war, that that's what's at stake. I also tend to think that um, there's still enough hope. There's enough hope that we can we can pull ourselves out of this. Now, if we lose the midterms, and I'm terrible at predicting those. Then, uh, then I might swing my vote back to you, Rosa. Hmm. Well, I think this is going to have to be a bit of a cliffhanger. I am going to pop in, though, with the answer to my second question there, because whereas the Thirty Years' War, which was the most destructive war in the history of the world until that point, did indeed last 30 years, the Hundred Years' War actually lasted 116 years, um, from 1337 to 1453. So um, these things can... Well, who knows? You know, they may they may rise up in chairs. You you just don't know. Uh, And I did like Evelyn's little uh, Freudian slip there that goes back to our attack on white males earlier when she was trying to say doom and gloom. And she had said said doom and groom. Um, which, <laughs> which you know presumably is worse um uh i get i get an enormous amount of twitter hate by the way because i once wrote an article saying the shift that was taking place in the united states demographically and worldwide in terms of power was leading us away from an era of number of hundreds of years where white male rule uh had dominated and we were moving into an era where rule was more diverse, women were playing a role and so forth. I kind of thought that was a positive thing. And, you know, neo-Nazi groups and others that have enjoyed a renaissance in the United States uh, tweet at me constantly um, about having made this this statement. So stand by, folks, for having participated in this conversation. I got lit up today uh, because I'd written a column for the Atlantic trying to argue that there that there could be reason sensible reasons for withdrawing from the INF treaty and I am in an avalanche of people saying she her institutes funded by defense companies she did, you know as though I can't possibly have an opinion on this subject that you know, you could look the last 30 years at. Yeah, well, uh, you know. Corey, I've agreed with you on that topic, actually. Um, and and I also, I've just gone quiet because I just decided I was giving the administration the benefit of the doubt. And the arms control people, they're very uh, emotional. 
Oh, well, but there's all the, I mean, you guys know that I was like raked over the coals because a different division of our company does a bunch of consulting on things like arts and culture and, you know, green energy and women's empowerment for the UAE. And they just all were coming after me saying, uh, well, you can't possibly comment on anything about the UAE. But, you know, we literally have not said one thing that was consistent with UAE government policy. In this episode, particularly, I said the Saudis and their allies have gotten everything wrong, but they don't care. They just want to, no. you know, they just want to keep coming at it and saying, no, no, you can't possibly be honest, you know, because how? Because my, the criticism would be more than 100 percent critical. I mean, I I don't know. It's these are strange times we live in. Uh, and we'll talk about that on the very next episode of Deep State Radio. We've come to the end of this episode. And uh, for it, I want to thank Corey, and I want to thank Evelyn, and I want to thank Rosa, and I want to thank all of you for listening. And I want to thank everybody out there for going to deepstateradionetwork.com, looking at all the new content, signing up for the Deep State uh, uh, Radio Daily Brief, which we have put out now every day, uh, and which now includes deep tech a once a week look at tech stories that are driving world affairs. And, um, you know, if you sign up for that daily brief, you can just register. You don't even have to, you know, pay us anything. You know, you don't have to become a member. Of course, you know, all your nerd friends will ostracize you for your cheapness and for your lack of support for the deep state. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, you have to live with that. Um, uh, you're a deep state nerd. You probably don't have that many friends to begin with. We'd like you to go, go visit the site, see if you like it, see if because you want to. Because we don't have many friends either. Right. We need you. <laughs> we need you. Please <laughs> be our friends. Remember, and the Rosa. Whole, the whole business. Yes, I was willing to pay for friendship. You should be too. Right. Those of you who are real deep state followers know <laughs> that in elementary school, Rosa paid little quarters and nickels to have friends, um, and that's $2. where fifty cents. That's where all this goes, by the way, folks. Send the money into the deep state, and we will give the money to Rosa so she can have more friends. Um, <laughs> I'm Rosa's friend for free. Yes, oh, well, me too. As are we all. Nobody, no, nobody, nobody would uh, I could could think of a better kind of friend. Uh, anyway. That's it for this episode. Thanks, everybody. Join us again for the next one or a one-on-one -on -one or something else that we're doing here. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.